0: I love Anthony's standing up here holding a coffee mug, thinking he's on Good Morning America, little talk show. Um, so today we are continuing, this is a third Sunday in our series called Honest Doubt, and uh, so I was trying to make this flow because I had to do an introductory talk here, and then I was going to do a main service talk up there, and then to come back down here. So I know some of you guys... Um, we're here the first week, some of you guys heard the talk up there, some of you guys are going to hear this for the first time today, so I'm trying to make all this overlap, but have it all make sense. So we're going to jump right in today, and uh, we've been talking about how it's really cool to question and doubt everything, especially in the world that we live in today. It's, if, if you're the cynic, if you're the skeptic, you are seen as the smartest person in the room. The person who is the cynic or the skeptic often has this air of mystery about them. And you see this play out, I think, on your campuses, you'll see it play out next year when many of you guys go off to college, that the person who questions everything and doubts everything often just seems like the smartest person in the room. And often they are a very, very intelligent person, which is why they are um, asking lots and lots of questions. And I think it's 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 easy for us as Christians now to think that we, of course, we live in a hostile culture that is sort of against the, the Christian faith in some sense, um, but I think many of us, we forget that Christianity has always had to survive in a hostile culture. I know you know this, but I think we we have this mindset that says, like, um, things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think it can feel that way, but I think we have to remind ourselves that Christianity has always had to live in a hostile culture. There's a, um, I'm going to show you a couple of um, uh, pictures of ancient graffiti. I'll show you the first pic, which you really can't make out uh, fully. I'll explain this in a minute. Um, That's the actual uh, ancient graffiti somewhere um, in the Middle East. And then go to my next slide, which they've kind of charged the photo. You can see what it is on the photo. Um, This is ancient graffiti. This is actually a person with a horse head or a donkey head on a cross with their side pierced. And this is um, ancient graffiti that you find in the Middle East. So even back then, when all of this was just beginning, Christians were seen as fools Someone who would believe in um, a savior, someone who would believe in a risen Christ, would be seen as a fool to the world around them. So Christianity has always had to survive in the midst of a hostile culture. And you might ask, be asking the question today: You know, how can I be a Christian and not look like a fool? Because I think that much of our doubt is is comes from external pressure. Like you just in the world that we live in today, you just feel like. To be a Christian, I just feel like I'm just made fun of and I just feel like I'm a fool in front of the world that we live in. And I think if history teaches us anything, it's this that you can't you can't really be a Christian and not be seen as somewhat of a fool to the culture that you and I are a part of. Throughout history, following Christ has made many people look foolish. And the same goes for today. And I know that we talk about this a lot, especially this time of year when our seniors are going to be heading off to college and a in a few weeks, um, but I know I'm not, I'm not dumb. I, we, we know that, that um, in your high schools, you face this battle now. It's not like when you graduate from high school, all of a sudden you are um, in this other world of, of cynicism. and it, it happens now in your high school. It happens now where you live right now. But here's what happens, though: when you leave for college, um, the battle just gets a little more messy. The battle gets a little bit louder. Um, whenever you guys leave for college. And it gets it's just different because you, now you feel like you're kind of on an island. You don't have all your church friends. You don't have your family. You don't have the people, that your support network that you can kind of cling to. It's just different. And we've talked about how there are really two sides of doubt as we've been looking at this series. The two sides of doubt I want to focus on again are intellectual doubt, what we think, and personal, what we feel. If I could break it down, the intellectual doubts would be things like how can I make sense of science and Christianity? How can I make sense of, um, of is the Bible true? Um, what about heaven and hell? Like these big intellectual questions that many people have. This is intellectual doubt, what you think. Personal doubt is what you feel. Personal doubt is things like, in my life, why have I suffered the way that I've suffered? Why does my life not look the way that I thought it would look at this stage of my life? And these are personal questions. These are things that you struggle with personally and doubt can creep in as a feeling more than just an intellectual issue. And this morning I want to talk about how I think feeling doubt is more common than the intellectual doubt. And I think here's how the feeling doubt happens, especially at your age. I'm just going to give you an example. This is an analogy of I think how doubt can play out um, in our lives. So think of a relationship. Let's just Imagine for a minute that there's a girl who is a fairly solid Christian believer, and she has some solid Christian friends. And there's this one guy who's not a not a believer, not a good influence, not a good guy who's pursuing her, and he's just pulling out all the stops to pursue her. And she knows, she believes that he's a bad dude. She believes that he's not a good influence, not a good guy to be um, to be with. And all of her friends agree. And he's pursuing her. And so finally she says yes to this guy. She says, yes, you know, it's just one, it's just one time out. It's just one date. What's the big deal? Um, what's the worst that could happen? And so she goes into this still believing that this guy is a bad dude. And she goes out on this date with this guy, and, and um, she realizes several things. She realizes, man, I never realized how hot this guy was, right? She realizes, I never realized how fun. This guy is hilarious. He is so funny. Like, I'm just laughing The entire time when we're out on the stage. She she realizes that um, he's more of a gentleman than she thought he was. Like he's opening up doors. He's being nice to her. He's being respectful. And so what's happening in that moment is that her feelings are beginning to take over. And what happens in that moment is that she's caught up in the moment. She begins to question her beliefs. So watch this. Her experience with this guy begins to make her question her belief that he's a bad dude. All right, So her feelings in this, at this time become more powerful than what she believes. Now this is meant to be a picture for you because this is, I think, just what happens to you spiritually. And it may not be in a relationship scenario, but it could be in any scenario where your experiences will cause you to doubt what you believe. So you go off into college, you go into your high schools, you have certain beliefs that you say you ascribe to. And then you meet someone, or you have um, a friend that struggles with a certain sin issue, and you start to question and go, but I just, my experience isn't matching up with what I'm saying I believe. And so what happens is your experience and your feelings begin to take over your belief system. And before you know it, you're sort of saying goodbye to your belief system, and you're living based on feeling and based on experience. And this is how I think this cycle can happen in our lives. Write this next quote down. Doubt always seems more intellectual than it really is. Doubt always seems more intellectual than it really is. I told you um, a while back, uh, I guess last week and also the week before last, about my uncle, my uncle in Houston, who's an atheist. And I've always seen him as this an intellectual guy and has just intellectual doubt. But here's what I asked him when I was in Houston a month ago. I said, Mark, tell me how... You became an atheist. I mean, I know you, I knew you my whole life. I, I know you're an atheist, but tell me how you became one. And he said, well, I grew up, as you know, in a Jewish home. So his parents were ethnically Jewish but also religiously Jewish. They did not teach him that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They did not teach him to celebrate Christmas or to sing Christmas songs. They did not celebrate Jesus Christ as the Messiah in his house. And so he's raised in a Jewish home. But he went to a school in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania as an elementary kid, and as he's being raised in this school, in the school they would sing Christian songs, they would talk about Christmas, and even in a public school they would talk about Jesus and, um, and the Christmas story. And as a little kid, he thought that God was going to strike him with lightning because he thought, I don't believe that stuff, the way that they teach it, but I'm being taught this, I'm having to sing Christian songs And he thought God was going to strike him. God, like the Jewish God, Yahweh, was going to strike him dead because he was sinning in his eyes by somehow ascribing to this Christmas and Christian story. And he said, I would lay in bed at night and awake just wondering, when's God going to kill me? When's God going to strike me down? And so he grew up thinking of God as this um, horribly angry um, deity that just had it out for him. And so what you see happen is this personal feeling, this personal experience led into some intellectual questions. Here's what I think happens to a lot of people, is that the intellectual questions, which might come later in life, end up just masking a lot of real personal doubt that they experience early in their life. I never knew that about him. I've known him for my entire life, never knew that story behind his questions and his skepticism. Virtually everyone, I think, that claims this intellectual doubt there 's an experience that often lies behind it and but I want you to see also there's a there's a there 's a relationship between the intellectual and the personal because as they have these personal doubts they begin to latch on intellectual reasons to doubt and so again the intellectual doubts begin to just mask over the personal experience behind much of the doubt that they um, are experiencing so um, this morning we 're going to talk about so since since doubt often creeps in more on the personal side, today I want us to look at, uh, I'm calling this talk, Doubts About Yourself. And we're going to look at three, I think, common doubts that we struggle with um, even as believers. So, But first, I want you guys to do questions one and two at your tables. Go ahead and discuss those two first two questions. All right, so there's a few doubts that I want to talk about this morning. These are doubts that I have struggled with myself, but also doubts that I know many of you have verbalized to me over the years. And so we're gonna look at three common doubts that I think we struggle with as Christians, and even maybe if you're not a Christian this morning, you've had these same kinds of questions. But there are three the first one I want to talk about is one I mentioned in the main service last week, and it's the first common doubt I think I want to talk about is um, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And I know um, I told the story last week in the main service. I mentioned the story here before in this service. But when I was in high school, I went through a phase of a faith crisis when I was 17 years old. And I was really doubting my faith. I was doubting whether or not I was saved. And the question I kept wrestling with was, I believe that God was real, but how do I know my faith is real? How can I be sure that my faith in God is real? And I had this crisis of faith when I was in high school. And I went to my youth pastor, and I said, um, I said Rob, I'm having a, a difficult time understanding how do I know I'm really saved? And he said, we sat in his office, and he turned his Bible to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I'll never forget this experience. He showed me this, this, this passage in Romans where it says, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now, when he first showed me this passage, my first reaction wasn't, oh, thank you, Rob, and now it's all cleared up. My first reaction was, okay, Rob, well, right here it says, if you believe in your heart. And I said, well, how do I know I believe something in my heart? How can I prove that? How do I know that? And this is what he said to me. He said, said, Dave, I think if you believe something in your heart, it's going to change the way that you live doesn't mean you're perfect, no one's perfect, but it's going to change. If you believe something in your heart, it's going to change how you live. And so you have to ask yourself the question, do my beliefs, what I say I believe, does it change the way in which I live? We talk a lot in this room about repentance and the importance of repentance. And I will never tell someone that that I can't be the judge of someone's salvation but if someone's life is not marked by repentance, continual repentance, then I would wonder, I'd question, like, does someone really believe something in their heart? Because when someone believes something in their heart, to that depth, it's going to affect how you live. And so, um, is your life marked by repentance? repentance? Repent means to turn around. It means to turn away from sin. It comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn around. This is to turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus. Now repentance is not a work that you do to get saved. But I would tell you that if someone has the work of the Holy Spirit happening in their life where God is drawing them to himself, then it's gonna, their life is going to be characterized by repentance. Now it does not mean that you don't backslide and fall and struggle. I'm not saying that today but your life is going to be characterized by repentance if you you truly believe something in your heart. I also mentioned in the main service last week that we are not, you guys remember the mustard seed? Uh, We did the mustard thing up here on, on stage here in the Outback as well. We talked about how we are not saved by our ability to have faith. Just get that out of your mind right now. You're not saved by your ability to have faith. Jesus uses the phrase a mustard seed, this tiny mustard seed, is the kind of faith that you need to have. And it's not, it's not to brag about the quantity of your faith. It's to boast in who you have your faith in. That's the point of the gospel. So we're not saved by our ability to have faith or the quantity of our faith. There's a Scottish preacher who says this next quote. He says, With a weak faith and a fearful heart, many a sinner stands before the Lord. It is not the strength of our faith, but the perfection of Christ's sacrifice that saves. No feebleness of faith nor dimness of eye, nor trembling of hand, can change the efficacy, which means efficiency, of Christ's blood. The strength of our faith can add nothing to it, nor can the weakness of our faith take anything from Him. Did you see what he just closed that quote with? There is nothing that you and I can add to our faith and nothing that we can take away from it because He is sufficient. His blood is efficient for us, for salvation. If salvation depended on our ability to have faith, then not one of us would be saved. So this is, I think, the first doubt that I hear often in myself, but also I think in many of you. I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. The second doubt that I think I hear a lot is something like, I don't experience God's presence in my life. I don't experience God, and you might use words like, I just want to feel God, or I want to feel His presence, or I want to experience Him, or I'm not sure what words you might use, but we often think things like, well, if I'm really a Christian, and I think I am a Christian, well, why don't I experience Him in real ways? Why don't I sense His presence? Why, don't, why is my life not characterized by that reality? I think what can happen to many of us is we, we first come to faith. And especially if you were saved at, maybe like in your early teens, where you had an awareness of like your depravity, an awareness of your sin, and you come to faith maybe later in your your teen years, or for someone else, maybe they come to faith in their late 20s, early 30s, and they've lived some life, and they've seen what life is like without Christ. And when you first come to faith in Christ, it can feel powerful. It can feel like, wow, this is... This walk with Christ is amazing, and God can feel so present in your life, but over time, this feeling of God's presence can begin to wane, and doubt can begin to settle, and you you ask yourself the question, well, how, where is this presence now? Like, why can't I feel this presence now? What do you do when your feelings don't match your beliefs? And when you and I open up the Bible, we see some really good news. We see a man like David, who was um, a shepherd, but he was... Um, promised to be the next king of Israel. And we see the same thing experienced in the life of David. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 42. David is anointed the next king, but he is on the run from Saul. You guys know, many of you know the story where Saul was the current king of Israel, and he was jealous of David because David was supposed to be the next king of Israel. And the saying goes that David was more respected by men than Saul was. David would kill his ten thousands, Saul would kill his thousands, they would say. And so Saul felt this jealousy of David, and so Saul is chasing David, trying to kill him. And in one of those dark moments where you, you have to understand, David is, has been sworn to be the next king, and now he's on the run, um, trying to save his own life. And Psalm 42, he writes these words. He writes, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. What David is doing is he is reflecting on a time when he used to lead the whole nation in worship. He's reflecting on a time where um, a good time for him, a time when he used to sense God's presence, sense God's nearness to him, but now he's being chased by someone who's trying to kill him. And he's probably asking questions like, where is God? Where is God in the midst of my suffering? And again, his doubt is caused by an experience. I told you a while ago about my uncle. Most people, their doubt is caused by an experience. Their mind and their heart can't make sense of what's happening in their experience. And so how does David respond in this passage? First of all, David doesn't deny his doubts. He, he's honest about his doubts. I know that this seems like a simple truth. We've tried to reinforce it over and over again in this small series that we're doing. But he's honest. He, he calls his struggle what it is. I mean, he, I love that God puts the struggle of someone like David in the Scriptures, David's doubt and his questions are written in the scriptures for you and I to see. I think God's trying to say something about that. That you need to speak these things to God when you're having these kinds of questions and doubts. You speak them to God in the same way that someone like David spoke these things to God. He's honest about them. But here's where I also want to introduce you to what I think is a lost spiritual discipline. When I say spiritual most of us think of prayer, read the Bible. If we say discipline, um, we think of, okay, go open your Bibles, go pray, go read, and that's a good spiritual discipline. But the one I think that we've lost is the spiritual discipline of remembering. All through the Bible, you see this discipline of remembering and thinking back to a time when you sense the presence of God and reflecting on that and ruminating on that and thinking about it and David's writing psalms about it. But this act of remembering, I think, is immensely powerful in the life life of a Christian. And you cannot ignore that and just focus on the rote skills of just prayer and just reading your Bible. But you've got to think about when in my life... Have I sensed God's presence? And at times, latch on to those experiences, even in the middle of a difficult situation, because that can be what God uses to pull you out of the pit. Many, many years ago, um, I think my first sermon I ever preached in the main service up there was a sermon on remembering. And I used part of this passage. And one of the statements that I used like 12 years ago was, Remembering the past can change us in the present. When you and I reflect back on a time in your life when God's presence seemed so near, God himself just, it it felt like you could just touch him. It felt like the weight of his presence was just with you. When you reflect back on a time like that in your life, that that can actually change you in the here and now. It can change you in the present. Whenever you and I, if you feel like you can't sense his presence right now, you need to think back on a time when you could remember, you could feel his presence. And then watch what happens when David does this. It says, he starts preaching to himself. As he thinks back on the past, he then turns in these little two verses. He turns, he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? He's now preaching a sermon to himself. His crying turns into praise. This act of remembering for him, his crying turns into praise towards God. And I think what it says to us is that whenever we don't feel his presence, you still choose to praise him. In the midst of your questions, in the midst of your doubts, you still choose to praise him in the midst of whatever you're experiencing in your life. You're going to see a few quotes by uh, C.S. Lewis. I like to quote C.S. Lewis a lot. He's a great um, guy to quote. He says this next quote. He says, the best way to make Christians into atheists is to stop them thinking about God and get them thinking about their own states of mind about God. He's saying that one of the biggest mistakes that we can make as Christians is to get consumed with our doubt. And what Satan wants to do in your life is he wants to take your mind off of God himself. Take your mind off of praising him. Take your mind off of trusting him. And he wants you to doubt him. And so he wants you to become consumed with your state of mind about God, not God himself. Because when you start heading down that pathway and you're evaluating everything and you're overthinking and analyzing everything, this is right where... Satan wants you to be because he knows he started you on that path towards unbelief and skepticism and questioning everything in the midst of your doubt. Another common doubt that I think many of us struggle with is I feel like a loser Christian. And this can come in multiple forms. This can be a statement that just says, you know, I'm, I mean, I messed up last week, last month, every day last month. I messed up, and I messed up bad. And I feel like I'm just not a good Christian. I feel like a loser Christian. It could be struggles from sin. It could be just struggles from not knowing your identity in Christ. It could be not knowing how he's gifted you and wired you. Maybe you're the quiet type. Maybe you're the person that's introverted. And you see all those crazy, outgoing people in the church that seem to do so well in front of a crowd or seem to do so well doing whatever we're doing in the, in, these, um, in the church, and you just feel like you're not where they are. You feel like you don't have much to offer. And you feel like you just don't have the gifts that someone else has. You feel like a loser Christian in your mind. And so this this mindset can happen a number of ways. But I want you to hear the words of Paul. If that's where you find it, I want you to hear the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. If you feel like a loser Christian, then you can join the same club as Abraham, moses joshua jeremiah david all the disciples and paul it's a big club there's lots of room in this club everyone's invited to this club the point of the christian life is not to feel like a successful christian Have you ever noticed that the moment you start feeling like a successful Christian, you feel like a failure again? You know why? Because feeling like a a successful Christian just leads to pride. And so everything in your life might be lining up and you're just, you feel like, man, I'm just growing, 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 growing. And all of a sudden, wait, pride. It just all falls back down again. The point of the Christian life is not to feel like a successful Christian. The moment you and I do, pride creeps in, and we're back to ground zero. But I want you to see, look at this verse again. How is God's power shown? According to what uh, Christ or God is saying to Paul through this passage, God's power is shown through our weaknesses. Paul says he's going to boast in his own weakness so Christ's power can rest on him. Just how how crazy is that? How ironic is that? That Paul is saying he boasts in his weaknesses. Most of us, we think of boasting. We think of bragging about something we have done. Paul turns it on his head and he says, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. I'm going to brag about my weaknesses. Because when I do that, this is when Christ's power is made perfect in me. It's through my weaknesses his power is released in me. And there's a quote I want you to write down, this next quote. If your confidence is in God, then when you fail, you will not feel totally defeated. For you and I, if our confidence is placed fully in Jesus Christ, and our identity is in Him, then when you and I fail, it's not going to feel like the world is shattered. It's not going to feel like, um, you're not going to feel depressed. You're not going to feel all this anxiety because your, your identity is in Him. If there's this one idea I can get, it'd be this idea. Because if your confidence is in Him, when you and I fail, our world doesn't fall apart. Because we're resting in His grace, in His mercy. As a Christian, do you feel weak? Do you feel like a loser? You're supposed to, according to this passage. But you can rejoice knowing that His power is made perfect in your weaknesses. This is the concept Paul, I think, is trying to communicate in this passage. And I want to talk this morning, um, as we close up here in a minute, how to handle um, these doubts. Like we talked about being honest. We have talked about being honest about your doubt. That's the We start by being honest when it comes to these doubts and questions. This means that like David, you go and you talk to God. You, you are honest with God, first and foremost. You start there. You're honest with God. Secondly, You are honest with close friends. You share in community with people your questions, your struggles, your doubts. This is what the church is for. And then there's something I want to challenge you guys to do. You may not have thought of this, but be honest with your parents about your doubt. Your parents might seem scary to you when it comes to these things, but I guarantee you if many of you came to your parents humbly and said, Mom, Dad, I question. I have doubts. I have I have things I'm thinking through. I think you'd be surprised at how that's received. I think you'd be surprised at at what they might share with you. Well, you know what? I've struggled with that. I've had those same kinds of questions. If there's one thing I wish I had, I would have had time for last uh, Sunday morning in the main service, it would have been challenging the parents to be honest with you about their own doubts. Because that opens up the door for you to be honest with them about your doubts and questions. So use your parents as a resource. Go to your parents, confess these things to them, and and make make your family a place where um, you're not trying to be rebellious, you're just trying to figure out what you believe and why you believe it. Have those open-ended dialogues and those kinds of questions, and be honest about it. Secondly, grow a deep faith. There's so many of us that are satisfied as Christians having a shallow faith. And a shallow faith is a vulnerable faith. A shallow faith is a faith that is ripe for the picking when it comes to Satan and his enemy, and and our enemies. A shallow faith is a vulnerable faith. So many of us, I think, are are so comfortable with just a shallow, surface level, yeah, I've got some understanding of who Jesus is, I've got some understanding of the Bible, but not much, and I don't want to go any deeper. It's just kind of boring and pointless. And and you just you just could coast through life and not really taking any of it that seriously, not really taking any of it um, too intensely. Because you, you don't want to be one of those Christians, do you? I mean, you don't want to be one of those like weirdo Christians who takes everything like real seriously. I mean, let's let's not be like that, right? Let's be superficial Christians, surface-level Christians. You know, the kind that can still have fun, the kind that can still have a good time, the kind that can still engage people in real conversation, like regular everyday, you know, sports and stuff. I mean, let's be one of those kinds of Christians, right? Let's be shallow Christians, superficial Christians. And so if you're going to be someone who's got a deep faith, that means you've got to actually pick up this book and read it. That means you have to spend time with God in prayer. It means you have to spend time with God reflecting on his word and digging into his word and growing in your faith. This is so important. I know it seems simple, but um, I read a story recently that I think describes the importance of this. It's going to sound weird at first, but just follow with me on this. This next picture is a picture of what's called a water spider. And When I thought of water spiders when I was younger, I just thought of ones that like were on top of the water just go across the water like you see on the rivers and stuff. But this is a unique water spider. This water spider actually can go under the water like a fish. And what it does is it will go to the surface and somehow get an air bubble attached to the back of its leg somehow. And it will go down and it actually creates a web underwater. And it will go down and create like a little web thimble type thing beneath the surface of the water, and it's, it's a little thimble that can house water bubbles. And what it will do is it will go under this, it will crawl its web through the water, and it will go under and release the water, release the, um, the bubbles under there, and store up air for a certain amount of time. Go back to the surface again, go back down, and it will go and stay under the water for a length of time as it breathes these bubbles that it's brought with it down to this little um, deal under the water. It's crazy how this spider survives. And this spider is not, of course, it, it, it lives on air like we do, so it can't like, really live under the water, but it, it lives in this hostile environment, the water that could eventually kill it, but it has to go above and bring this oxygen down, it has to go above to the surface, bring oxygen down, over and over and over again, in order for it to survive in this hostile environment. And this is a picture, I think, of what you and I have to do as Christians, you and I, we do live in a hostile environment with our faith. We do. One that you will not survive in if you are not going to him and getting the resources that you need to live in this hostile environment. You just are. And if you're going to be someone who, has a, who grows a deep faith, you've got to constantly go and get these resources from God. Constantly be pouring into your life. Constantly be um, reading his word, praying to him reflecting on him, living your your faith out in community. There's no way around that. This is is how you and I need to see our time with God. It needs to be seen as that essential for survival. You cannot live and flourish spiritually without it. And I think the third thing that um, I want to encourage you this morning to do is to exercise your faith. To exercise your faith. You've got to Exercise your faith in order to grow your faith. I think sometimes doubt happens not because people just lose their faith, but they stop using their faith. They don't lose their faith, they just stop living by their faith. And you're going to face this head on, I think, when you guys, when you guys head off to college if you haven't faced it already. And this is the kind of doubt that sneaks up on us. Because for a lot of people, faith just kind of dies slowly. I mentioned C.S. Lewis a while ago, another quote that I've always loved that he said. He said this next quote. He said, if you examined 100 people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them have been reasoned out of it by an honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? And I think what he's saying is true. I know many of us, we look at someone who's a doubter, a skeptic, a cynic, maybe not a believer. And we think that they have all this watertight arguments for why they're no longer a believer, why they're not a believer. But for many people, they just kind of drift away. And this is what I think happens, especially when you guys, when I've seen students go off to college, I rarely talk to someone that says, if I say to them, hey man, what happened? Like you were this solid believer here at the Outback and all of a sudden four years later, you're nowhere even close to being that. Like what happened? I've never heard a student tell me, well, you know, there was this one guy on campus, and he just gave me like point by point, bam, bam, bam. Here's why Christianity's dumb, and why you shouldn't believe it. That almost never happens. What I often will hear is things like, "I don't know. I just, I just kind of stopped going to be with Christians. I kind of started partying. I started my girlfriend and I. We started living together. We started having sex. I mean, just I just started living life, and I just I don't know. And I think. People just kind of drift away slowly. And this, I think, is the kind of thing that Satan wants because, watch, what's more likely to happen? You just kind of drift away slowly, or someone comes and, like, just bam, drops the hammer and, like, argues you out of your faith. That's less likely to happen. But drifting away slowly is highly likely to happen if you're someone who stops exercising your faith. There's a story I want to tell you, and I kind of debate if I should tell this or not, because I don't want to embarrass anyone. This person's not in the room, but um, her sister is, I think. But I'll tell the story anyway. Um, you guys know Caroline Mixon. She goes to AM. Whoop! Aggies, right? Yeah. That wasn't a very good whoop. But we'll give you a pass. So um, Caroline Mixon goes to AM, and several months ago, Caroline's a part of something called, it's actually called Impact, which is a camp that they run to um, bring other believers in. As, they, as, as believers come to campus, the Impact camp is made is, is, is so that they can connect you to a community, to churches, and to the body of Christ within a and University. And she's a part of helping to lead that camp and, and connect Christians when they come to A&M. And she texted me, I think, three or four months ago and said, Dave, um, I'm helping out with this camp at a m Can you like text me the the names and phone numbers of people that are coming to A and M, and I want to connect with them and get them plugged in down here at AM. and I'm like, I have no clues going to A and have no way to tell her, how to tell her that. And so I just like send a message back saying like, hey, we'll 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 look at that and we'll let you know. And then um, I think she asked me again like maybe two months ago, and I still had no idea. And then last Sunday, um, you guys are on the stage of the main service, and you're saying like, I'm so and so, and I'm going to this school and that school and this school. And after church, I get a message from Caroline, and she has like four or five of your names, what high school you went to, and that you're going to a and And she texted me and goes, these are the four that I took notes on today in the service that are coming to a and and can you let me know if there are more that you hear about? And here I am just going like, wow, this is pretty incredible that this, this girl is just getting after it when it comes to the body of Christ at College Station. She's, she is passionate about wanting to connect other believers to the church in College Station. And just the persistence and the love she has for the church is very evident to me as I see her um, desire to see you guys plugged into the church where she goes to school. And I think what you see is you see someone's faith being exercised. You see someone's faith being put into practice. You see her living out her faith where she is. And so I want to finish with this last uh, statement. We've talked a lot about experience and how doubt is caused by experiences. But if doubt is caused by experiences, then faith can be strengthened by experiences as well. And as you and I struggle with doubt because of experiences that happen past, present, and future in your life, then doubt can also be counteracted, counterpunched by faith as it grows as a result of experiences that you allow yourself to be a part of, like the body of Christ, like the church, wherever you find yourself. If there's one thing, if someone asks me, Dave, what is one thing that you want your students to get and be passionate about when they leave after four years in the Outback, eight years in the Outback, I would say I want them to be passionate about Christ and passionate about his church. Passionate for the bride of Christ. Because so many Christians will say, no, no, I love Jesus. I just hate the church. And you can't can't say that. You can't say you love Christ and hate his bride, hate his wife. And so there's one thing that I want to challenge our seniors on today. It's it's be passionate for Christ, be passionate for his church, be passionate for his bride. And you're going to see a lot of junk. You're going to see a lot of crap in the church. But don't let that negative stuff that you see in the church keep you from loving his bride, his church the one that he gave his life for so many, many years ago. And I want to just close out with this, just read one, one verse from, two verses from First Thessalonians. I consider this like just a prayer over you guys, especially for the seniors as they graduate, or some already have graduated. But Paul writes, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Father, we're just grateful. We're thankful that that you're a God who loves us the way that you do. You're a God that um, that cares for us so deeply, so passionately. We thank you that you're a God who um, can handle our doubts. You want us to be honest about our doubts, you want us to give them to you, and you want us to grow as we wrestle and struggle with these kinds of things, Father. And I pray God that in this room that as many of our um, seniors leave for school in a few weeks, that they'd be people who are uh, passionate for you and passionate for his, your church, and that in spite of what they might see wherever they go, if they see Christians that are just that look foolish if they see Christians that are doing foolish things on campuses and, and tainting your name, um, the name of Christ, I pray that they would still press on us, they, they, would, they, they would still press on in their faith and in their walk with you, Father. We pray that for our seniors and for everyone else in this room as well. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. You guys have a few more questions to discuss? Go ahead and discuss those last few questions at your tables.